There's a lot more parallels we could have to that story, isn't there? It's amazing. God does so much for us. Let's begin by praying to him and praising him. Father in heaven, you're so good to us. You've brought us through so much to even bring us here this morning. And so we trust that we're not here by accident. We're here because you've called us together here. We're the called out ones, your church, your bride. And so as we look at this topic of tribulation, how to overcome tribulation, we pray we'll see clearly Jesus who has overcome the whole world and he's the one who can help us through everything we encounter in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've read some different quotations that go like this. This one is from the Great Controversy. It says, There is another and more important question that should engage the attention of the churches of today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, or will suffer, future tense. Why is it then that it seems in a great degree to slumber, suffering and persecution? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standards and therefore awakens no opposition. She's talking about persecution and how it sprung up towards the early apostles, James being beheaded and others. So the church of today awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. Let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church. I say, yes, let there be. But she says, let that happen. And the spirit of, the spirit of um, excuse me, persecution will be revived. And the fires of persecution will be rekindled. I was uh, looking at some scriptures when I looked at that quotation this week. Persecution could be rekindled. It's amazing, isn't it, that if we come closer to Jesus, then that means we are changed, the church is changed, we then begin changing society, and as a result, opposition arises. Well, it's nothing really new. You look at the seven churches, and as you look at the churches and the periods that it appears that they correspond with, for instance, the apostolic times, really seems to correspond with Ephesus. You find that there was a holy zeal, there was one rebuke, which was, go back to your first love. And as we get down to the next church in the seven churches, we find Smyrna. And Smyrna is linked to a time of persecution. As I look at the seven churches, I can see time periods. You can kind of correlate them with church history. I've done that before here. But I also notice something interesting. If we are down at the last stage and somehow get our eyes off of Jesus, and we return to the first stage, the apostolic stage, the church of Ephesus, our first love, then what is the next thing that happens? Persecution. And this whole scenario begins to try to unfold before us. A union of church and state, a medieval type of dark power, uh, a call for reformation and true revival. So if, if we follow this type of scenario, not only down through the history books of, of what we have available, but if we were to follow up personally, then we would find ourselves right over here in persecution if we return to our first love. Not because we're somehow seeking it out, not because we're saying, well, I'm better than you now, you know, I know Jesus, he's my first love. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's because the light shines in darkness. It has never stopped shining, and when he shines in our hearts into the darkness, there's a reaction. It's not like it's even your fault. 
I mean, who would have said to Stephen, hey, you better quit going out there and taking care of those people with uh, their means and preaching God's word, or to Philip, hey, you know, just don't go reach that Ethiopian eunuch over there or do miracles in my name. I mean, they did it because that's what God led them to do, and as a result, Stephen dies for his faith. James, later on, we find he dies for his faith. So Christians don't necessarily go seek out persecution, but it comes as a result of knowing Jesus. Jesus himself said in our scripture reading, in this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Cheer up, I have overcome the world. So as I look at these, the seven churches, we get to the church of Smyrna, this message should be telling us not just, hey, there are times of persecution, but how do we overcome persecution? How do we overcome tribulation? Smyrna is an interesting word. You can link it uh, if you've got eSword or some other word study tool. I've got a nice book. You can begin to link this back to a, a root, uh, which basically is myrrh. Uh, you find myrrh right there in the middle of the word Smyrna. And myrrh, as we know, is a bitter gum and costly perfume which exudes from a certain tree or shrub in Arabia and Ethiopia. It's obtained by incisions made in the bark, and it's also used as an antiseptic for embalming. So for death, it was linked with death. That's why when we find the wise men coming, we find frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Not only could they sell it as a costly item, but it also seemed to symbolize some of the aspects of his ministry, his priestly, his kingly, and also his death. So Smyrna itself, it's interesting that it has a connection with death, the very word itself. Because as we read the text in Revelation, Jesus links it to death. If you look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and you can follow along in your version, I'm putting this one up on the screen, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things saith the first and the last, who was dead and lived again. So here you have Jesus, right off the bat, cites the church and said, talks about death and life, living again. How to overcome death, how to overcome what Smyrna's own meaning itself is, which is an embalming of death, is Jesus. He died and lives again. And later on, we're going to find the same type of thing further on, where they're going to face imprisonment and death. So I found it interesting that here we are in a Christian relationship with the Lord, and if we rekindle that, here's a church that has to overcome death in tribulation. Even though there's nothing wrong with this church, it's one of those churches where you find commendation, it has to overcome something. Isn't that like that in our Christian experience? Where same things could be going seemingly fine with us, but there are still items that we need to overcome as well. There's still snags of death trying to hold on to us from this world. He says, I know that thy tribulation and thy poverty, but thou art rich, and the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Fear not the things which thou art about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. So I'm going to talk about the first underlined statements above there. This message comes directly from and personally from Jesus. That should be encouraging to this church. Imagine this church has been going through trials and tribulation. We find eventually Polycarp and others do die for the Christian faith. And imagine they receive this letter. It's coming from the first 
and the last. We learn that this is another than Jesus. Again, it tells you right there in the text. But the first and the last. The same first and the last you find in Revelation, you find him in Daniel. The same description you find in Revelation, you find in Daniel. And what's interesting about what we find in Daniel is that eventually kingly authority is given to this first and this last, this individual who looks just like the one here in Revelation. And when that authority is given, God's people are delivered from a great tribulation in Daniel chapter 12. So as, as we think about Jesus in Revelation, we can think back to Daniel and say that same message that God will come and deliver his people is continuing all the way down through the time of John and it can continue, continue all the way down to the end of time as well for us today. It's an amazing description of Jesus. Imagine seeing him with eyes as torches. Imagine seeing him as arms and feet like burnished brass. Imagine his voice. It's like many waters or a huge multitude of people. You ever been in a crowd where there's so much noise you can barely even hear the person next to you? I mean, this is the type of power in his voice, in his words. Or like the sea roaring over at the coast. And this is the only one who can approach the throne. And this is the one we fall at his feet and worship, this Jesus. So Smyrna gets this personal message from that first and the last, the one who will eventually reign. And he says, I know your works, your tribulation, in your poverty. Some versions leave out the word works. I think we should put it in there because those three items, I know your works, which we find Ephesus was lacking their first works. These guys are not lacking their first works. So it's the word ergon, which is the same exact word you find in the previous church. I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, even being thrown into prison. Works, like I've said, is the same word as mentioned with Ephesus. Other than in Ephesus, it says first works, which is linked to their first love. This church has that. It is possible to maintain love in the midst of great tribulation. Jesus says in Matthew 24, make sure that your love does not grow cold. The love of many will grow cold, and it's implying make sure yours doesn't when you see all these things. Because in Luke 21, 28, it says, Behold, look up, lift up your heads, for the time of your redemption draweth nigh. That's what we're to do when we see all these things happening around us. We're to look to Jesus. We're to say, Lord, we are waiting for you. And in the meantime, we will impact this world as well. We will not get bogged down with this world. So these are Christians who have that first works. They have the works, which means they probably have that first love. I'm just, it doesn't say it directly in the text, but you can make a correlation there. And they have those works and yet are persecuted heavily for having those. Can you imagine going up to somebody whose livelihood is totally counteracted by your message? They could get angry about that, couldn't they? You find examples of that with the metal workers in the book of Acts, where all of a sudden, because of the preaching of the apostles and their love for Jesus and many people's hearts being converted, those guys go out of business because of their idols. And what's the response? It's anger. It kindles a persecution. Not because they're out there you know, being Christian arsonists, setting persecution fires all over the place, but it's because of their love for Jesus and many hearts being 
made right. So it's just like that phase of Christian history right after the apostolic times. This church is, is experiencing that. Tribulation. It's that same word in our scripture reading that Jesus talks about. It's that same word in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. This idea of here you are doing everything right for the Lord and yet you're being oppressed. You're being shoved and pressed down in the Greek. You're, you're basically under extreme pressure to see if you're going to break. And who's putting that upon Christians? It's the devil and the world. And the Lord is the one, according to James chapter 1, he doesn't tempt any man. In fact, it says in chapter 1, verse 12 of James, blessed is the man who endureth temptation, for when he is tried, when he is tried or pressed down or oppressed, if you will, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord gives to those who love him. So this idea of the crown of life, these guys are pursuing it. Even though they are pressed down, they're not tempted by God. They don't see this as coming from God. They see it as coming from the opposition, and they stand even firmer in the midst of the tribulation. But I noticed it used the word poverty. This is like people begging. You find in the book of Acts, you find Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and then what do they find? A man there who's begging. Jesus finds people like that, and he heals them in his ministry. It's that same type of word, but what's also interesting is it's the same word that's used to describe Laodicea. These guys, people think are poor, but yet they are rich. Laodicea thinks it is rich, yet it is beggary. It is poor, poverty-stricken without Jesus. And so what was, what was uh, used to describe Laodicea figuratively is actually true about these believers literally. world sees them as poor, and Jesus says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your works, but you are rich. You are rich. In essence, when you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, you know, I do sometimes, I, I, I say, Lord, and I don't look in the mirror just to be like, oh, how's things looking? But, you know, that happens. You know, you've got to comb your hair and stuff. But it's more like every once in a while, I will pause and reflect on, on Lord how is our relationship? Not like I'm somehow crazy talking to myself, but sometimes I'll just pause and in the moment say, Lord, am I the person that you have, have guided me to be? Am I, am I, is there anything? And the mirror isn't, isn't my Bible. I go back to the Bible and, you know. But as you look in the mirror, picture a crown by faith on your head. Because that's what he's saying. It looks like you're poor, but you're rich. You all got crowns on your heads. So do I. Sometimes life tries to make us feel so dark and dismal that we forget to shine. But it's in that moment of encouragement from our fellow Christians. That's why we need each other, especially in these last days. We encourage each other to shine for the Lord. And wasn't that encouraging? They're sharing about warm pockets, taking these clothes down to, to people who basically feel down and out. And I'm not saying, you know, we don't want to perpetuate certain problems, but they need clothing. And what's tucked in that clothing? That's why it's called warm pockets. They're the warmth and love of Jesus in those pieces of literature. And so Jesus sees every person. He wants them to have the crown of life. And this is a whole church that they maybe are in poverty because of their faith. We know that there, there are records of, for instance, if a father, this is why some of them would go to the head of a household, and convert the whole household because if you converted a daughter or a son or, or even a spouse 
uh, of this husband in a, in a persecution-type home, they could be disowned. I, I know still modern stories in, from the Middle East, and you look at Joe Kidder, that's one example of this, where when they become Christian, they're disowned. So what happens to them? It becomes either a life of poverty or the church steps in. We find in the book of Acts, the church steps in. All things are common. They're, they're basically see each other as equal. They're helping each other. But some of them did live in poverty. Yet God sees on the top of their, basically sees that they are rich. Should be a lesson for us. We can't always judge on the cover. They look poor, but they are rich, and so are we. And the blasphemy of them, so I know your, your works, your tribulation, your poverty. Your works, you're like, you're like Ephesus used to be. Your tribulation because of your relationship with the Lord, your poverty, they, they, you've, you've endured stuff for my name. But it says, I also know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now we know the, church, the Christians are mostly meeting in homes, but you get the book of Acts. So the synagogue, like in Nazareth, there's pictures of the synagogue there. There's pictures of synagogues in different other towns. What is he talking about? I mean, they would go there to witness. They would go there to, sh if they say, well, you brothers have a word from the Lord, you know, that type of thing. They asked Paul and Silas at times to speak to them in some of these places. But when the Jews began to utter a benediction that was basically cursing them, some of them quit going to those places. I don't know if that's the case by the time of Smyrna. But as we think about it, the synagogue really isn't the focus of the first century church. It's the ecclesia, the called out ones in homes, gathering different places, and going to the synagogues and the temple to influence those people. But that's not really their main focus. So who are, who, what is the synagogue of Satan? Well, I was reading a quotation. It goes like this. This is from the Review and Herald, written long before my time, one of our Adventist publications, December 4, 1900. Christ speaks of the church over which Satan presides as the synagogue of Satan. Oh, that was a new twist for me. I thought, well, maybe it's these individuals in the church that um, are holding to rituals of Judaism, you know, certain things, uh, circumcision or whatever. I thought, you know, that's the initial reaction to the text. But she's saying, no, it's actually a church over which Satan presides as the synagogue of, of his. Its members are the children of disobedience. They are those who choose to sin who labor to make void the holy law of God. Now that becomes a timeless principle then. It goes beyond just the first century. It starts stretching down. And quite frankly, it reminds me of what our Pale Horse series is going to talk about this fall. Do you realize that there is an attempt to basically say the Reformation is totally done and it was a mistake? This fall, that's what's being attempted between the Lutherans and the Catholics. And once those two folds merge back together, basically the Lutherans are seen as wayward uh, daughter, if you will, of the mother church. And it permeates. And there's, there are some, some groups amongst the Lutherans who are not going to go along with this, especially in the Midwest. You all don't know about Midwest history sometimes. Some of you do. But I remember towns where I'd go and do revival meetings, and they all agreed with what we presented from Revelation 13. They're like, we used to preach it. Okay, that's, that's still happening in the Midwest. So when this starts, hands start joining together here, it kind of reminds me what's going on here. You know, this is, 
That's why I say this is a timeless principle. It's in, in Smyrna's original context, it could have been circumcision or other things like that that they were battling or, or Gnosticism. But now we get down to our time and it's clear. There are those who choose to sin and labor to make void the holy law of God. So what are we going to do to combat that? Well, Boonstra has come out with a series, a three-part series this fall called A Pale Horse Rides. And it's basically going to document and show that Luther's 95 thesis, especially the anniversary of this year, is something we need to keep, we can't agree with, I mean, Luther wasn't perfect, but basically the, the protest continues. That's what we're going to be talking about. And why are we protesting it? Because if you undermine God's law and you undermine Christ himself, then what happens? His death becomes of ill effect for us. And the only thing you have left is works then. That's a pretty serious thing. I would hate to, to meet Christ in the judgment with just my own works. Murray, Murray's record, Murray's life record. I mean, you could say yours. You could say, well, I've gone to church my whole life. You still have a life record that in thought or in deed is harmful to you spiritually and especially in the judgment. That's why Jesus offers his righteousness. That's why he says, I have this perfect record and it's yours by faith and choose to follow me. And what does that do? It begins to change you because now you realize that this is Jesus in your life and that you want to do everything that he would do and you begin to align yourself with his righteousness. But this is talking about a movement that comes later on, especially after if you look at the historical eras of the seven churches and you get down past Smyrna, eventually you get a union and eventually you have um, a merger. Well, it's interesting because that synagogue, if you will, continued on down through time past this time. It is Satan's work to mingle evil with good, to remove the distinction between good and evil. What if we discover our society has done that and all of a sudden we do a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, better than legislate what's good, right? Now, we're not living that side of heaven where everything is perfectly according to God's law. If human beings begin to enact something like that, then, then, they, then they use the power of the state to do it, then I believe we're in the same boat as the synagogue of Satan. And if we remove distinctions between good and evil, even in our own lives, where, and I know, you know we've got uh, movements that, you know, what used to be considered wrong, well, you know, that was old-fashioned. Old-fashioned. It's old-fashioned to court somebody for a year before you, before you marry them. Uh, better to court them than to figure out that after you married them, or nowadays, they like, it's called cohabiting, people move in together, which we don't condone as a church. But imagine that being called old-fashioned, getting to know somebody before you make a commitment to them for life. You know, this type of making good appear evil is rampant in our country today. And the biggest culprit of it, medium that's being used, is our media. You hear me talk about media all the time. It's a wonderful tool for the Lord. We know HMS Richards all the way down through time. We've used radio, we've used TV, we've used 3ABN. But imagine all of the filth that's out there. And some of you know about that filth. Some of you experience that filth. I'm not going to step on your toes too much, but frankly, it's time to give up the filth. And another area that I'm going to talk about, and I'm, I step on big toes every once in a while, but 
It's Sabbath, isn't it? What do we do on a Sabbath day? We focus on Christ, don't we? Spend time with our families. Spend time in nature. There are so many things that we can do on this day. We can go out and witness. We can go help somebody in the nursing home. There are so many things that this day is designed to do. It's not designed to be a day about ourselves. And I'm I'm going to meddle for a moment. When we have situations where, you know, we... We have a perfectly good meal here, and, and if someone goes and says, I'm going to go out to eat instead, I've got a beef with you. Because now you're making somebody else work. You're resting, but they're working. Can you imagine if you take a piece of literature and you leave it there about the Sabbath after you just hired them on the Sabbath, and now they read that piece of literature and they know, what are you doing, right? Or maybe sometime down the line you feel impressed to talk to that person, but then all of a sudden the devil has you hold back because, wait a minute, You hired them to work on the Sabbath. There's something not right about that. You know, even at Milo Academy, we would would prepare everything way beforehand, and I would basically make it so my workers would not have to do anything on that day except for put the food, warm the food up, and put it out like we do for the meal. And we shouldn't be slaving back there all day long for a meal. I'm not going to say that the Holy Spirit can't be your conscience on that. That's exactly where it needs to be. But I'm not okay with those things. I think that our society has mingled good with evil to the point where in a lot of areas, besides the the Sabbath keeping and other things, we don't even know what's holy anymore. And when that TV sits there, other than nature programs and good Christian programs, but then all of a sudden the sundown comes and I'm going to flip it over to what what happened? What happened to like the old Jewish way of looking at it? You know what? We're one, and we, want to, we look forward to the next Sabbath. Or as we used to say in Adventism, we're one Sabbath closer to your coming. I want to linger in that. And so that's my sermon on Sabbath keeping. You can find the rest in Nehemiah where they were at the gates and basically he said, uh, I'm going to lay hands on you. I won't do that, but I will say, the Holy Spirit can lay hands on you. Christ would have a church that labors to separate the evil from the good, whose members will not willingly tolerate wrongdoing, but will expel it from the heart and life. It's an individual thing. I'm just touching here and there, and if it's a sore spot for you, then take it up with a great physician. I'm just his assistant, and you know, a physician's assistant isn't quite the same as a physician, so go on to the physician, and he'll deal with you on that. But, and I have scars from Sabbath non-observance, okay? My teeth got knocked out. I got scars up here. You know, it's, I know about that. But I don't want to have to have to revisit those scars all the time. So, so this little side issue I just got off on, it was meant to illustrate how it's widespread, this idea of a synagogue of Satan, how Satan has a church which he presides over. He doesn't care how he presides. As long as he has a pathway or an inroad, he will, he will accept any inroad into the church and into our lives. And we have to be the ones to say, I can't willingly tolerate that. I'm shutting it down. I'm shutting it down. And Sabbath is the best day to do it because we say it's according to the word of God and I'm, I'm, I'm stopping, I'm ceasing. And so Smyrna was a place 
where they had this synagogue of Satan. We're not sure exactly all the ways that it was applied in their day, but we do see down through history the same type of mingling of, of good and evil. And frankly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, someone, you know, some people wonder, well, where is it at today? Well, it's in our heart. And basically, it's, it's a decision we all make in our hearts. It's everywhere. It's not limited to the Garden of Eden anymore because now Satan, because of Adam and Eve, he can place it anywhere in our lives. And the only way it can be uprooted is to partake of the tree of life. And we'll get down to the tree of life as we get down to the end of this text. Fear not the things which thou art about to suffer. So he's telling them, yeah, there's compromise. There's things going on. You've stood against it. And now he talks about fearing not what's coming ahead. Shouldn't we be the same? We shouldn't have to fearfully look at what's coming upon the world. Even suffering. I've had people come to me and talk to me about suffering. Pastor, I want to know exactly how it's going to happen. So, you know, they, they, basically when the Sunday law happens and I go out to the mountains, you know, I'm like, well, first of all, the first step is to move to the small towns in preparation for moving out to the country. You move to the small towns from the big cities down south, right, up to Anderson. That's one good step. But eventually you've got to take another step, which is if you're really going to have something to do with nature, you had better be out in nature. You know, and if you really think you're going to grow some food during a time of trouble, then you better know how to do it now in a time of ease. Because once we move into the small towns, then we move out to a country setting. You know, you'll need quite a few acres to really farm the land. I mean, the, the Amish struggle to get by with that. And then you've got to say, okay, Lord, uh, it's not like an evacuation plan, is it? it my, frankly... It's been whispered to me many times by the Lord, it could happen to you, Murray, that you might be one of those ones on your way back out of town at the end and get nabbed. Why? Because we have a message to deliver. You don't know when everybody's heard it other than you start seeing things happen in the land, but quite frankly, I'm not willing to just evacuate. Some people will be giving that message right up to the very end when when the law is preempted and they're taken to prison. So when I think about suffering and persecution, I'm not concerned about that. God has given us adequate knowledge to know that Satan will impersonate Christ, that there will be different legislation takes place, and there is, there is a process we're supposed to follow so that we can keep laboring as long as possible. But if we evacuate now in fear, then we hinder the work. And I've known some who live on 60 or whatever, 100 acres, and they've, they've basically made uh, that their, their focus instead of sharing the message. And frankly, after a while, they don't have a message. They don't even hardly come to town anymore. So what has the devil done? He's basically cut the message of Jesus off from that person delivering it because of fear. So we should take precautions, but we should not let the fear overtake us. Fear not the things which thou art about to suffer. Because look at this church. They're going to suffer for 10 years. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation 10 days. So not only are they going to suffer, they're going to be imprisoned. And you all know how ancient prisons were, especially to the ones who are being persecuted. I mean, it, wasn't a, it was not a jolly situation. Paul had it easy compared to some prisoners because he had believers coming and bringing him food. Can you imagine, though, 
that you are in a situation where that's not taking place. You know, I, I hate the rats that run around sometimes and, and mice uh, in, in my sheep shed. You know, imagine those crawling all over you type of situation. Well, that couldn't happen in America. Well, you know, frankly, they're gonna have there's going to be primitive methods of, of detaining people. You know, they're going to be called safety cams probably at first, but, but nonetheless, do you think those are going to be like your beautiful county jails that you have here? No, those will be reserved for certain higher-up prisoners. But as we talk, think about this, they're going to be thrown into a prison of suffering and tried and they're going to suffer for 10 days. You know, we have this 10-day period here, and, and many have noticed Numbers 14, Ezekiel 4, talks about these ideas of same, uh, a year, day for a year. But what I found was this persecution after the apostolic times, which fits into the Smyrna time period, if you want to use the periods, it fits with what Diocletian did. And we know he was emperor from 284 to 305, and during his reign, it's, I'm quoting, a persecution of Christians began during Diocletian's reign in 303, which was aimed at destroying the church buildings and copies of the New Testament scriptures. We all think that's not going to happen again. It happened. So he would destroy the buildings of the Christians and get rid of the New Testament scriptures because then what are they, what are they left being? They're basically left being a, a sect of Judaism then, which has been scattered so what did they do? Well, we found that, it, in essence, some scholars differ on the total time period, but it's about 10 years this went on for. So you are arrested at your home for your scriptures. And in three, by 303, we know some of them had erected small buildings of worship for him to go after them like this. So that's the obvious target. Then you find house groups and you start going after them, infiltrating them with different people and arresting them. And this is happening right now in our world today. Pastors and members meeting in homes are being invaded in certain countries. Their scriptures are being taken, their computers are being taken, their cars are being confiscated, and their homes are being destroyed. So it happened back then. Imagine suffering for that length of time, for 10 years. You know, our, our scenario of the last days, I am open to suffering for more than just, uh, some people think Sunday lot, boom, Jesus comes. What happens if it happens, and we're told we're out planting and stuff, and, and that's going to take some time, isn't it? If we're actually going to be doing agrarian pursuits to grow some food during some of that time, that means it's more than a, uh, a summer. It's more than just a, you know, right there, it's over with. It, that means suffering for a period of time. It may not be 10 years, we don't know. I've got a hunch, you know, it could be several years. And I'm using some of the scriptures, and I won't present that now. I'll present it for one of those uh, issues classes, and you can question me. But imagine this suffering. We're talking about ridiculing the Christians. We're talking about feeding them to animals. We know from contradictory historical sources one says, oh, they didn't do anything in the Colosseums to the Christian. The other one says they did. So they probably did. In fact, one of those sources that said that they didn't, later on down the line, said in the same source they did. So it contradicts itself. We know from historical sources, even those who say that maybe it didn't happen, it did happen. We find Eusebius is one church historian. He says, we saw the most marvelous inspiration, a force which was truly divine. What was that? and the readiness of those who had faith in the Christ God, of God. What was that inspiration? Immediately when sentence had been pronounced on one group, another party came before the tribunal, tribunal, 
acknowledging themselves Christians and remaining unmoved, this would be moving. They've been accused. They said, yes, I am a Christ follower. And they wanted them to be atheists, some of them. They wanted them to proclaim there basically there is no God, including your Jesus. But they remain unmoved before the dangers and torments of all kinds. Indeed, they reasoned with joy the final sentence of death. They sang hymns and offered thanksgiving to God of all until their last breath. Imagine their very last. I mean, I think I would have to sing if I'm being burned slowly. Something to get me through it. Quoting scriptures, putting my mind on heaven, something. Wouldn't you? You know, they, they didn't really burn you fast. They would, and you can read about this off the internet. It's all, there's historical sources where they would burn you slowly from the feet up. And only the lucky ones had gunpowder, or had uh, later in later times, had even had gunpowder attached to them further, further up, though. This is horrendous to have to inflict on other human beings. And imagine you're the Christian and you're singing through the whole thing. It's going to impact the tormentor. Unless they're totally possessed. We know they're agents of the devil. But imagine, though, God uses your persecution to kindle a love in their heart for Jesus. This is what they're singing about. They're just, I don't know what they sang, but it, they, that's what they did. And so we're going to return to this. And the question I have is, will we be unmoved? The only way to be unmoved and faithful is to know Jesus. If you're dying for a person that you know and that you know loves you and that you know died for you and that he went through so much for us, then you can at least say, this is small compared to what he did for me. He took away even the second death. I can at least go through this for my Lord. And so we have these seven churches. As you can look at them as time periods. And I believe when we return to the apostolic time, that, that love for the Lord, that first love, persecution will ring out. We know it happened after Smyrna. We know it's still happening today. In fact, if you look down through time, the Waldensians are one other example of this. Not perfect, I mean, they, they didn't have everything figured out, but here they are trying to conceal and smuggle portions of Scripture. It's the same type of persecution that Diocletian had, it's just different years. And here they are, their children are attending public universities. I wrote a paper called Waldensian Adventist, what it could look like if all of our, all of our, our kids, including myself at the time, I was one of those college students, if what we could do on a public campus to be similar. You know, they, would, they would actually influence their fellow students. They would, then when they found somebody who was open, they would, they, would, they would give them a portion of John or some other scripture and it would invite them. Almost clandestine-like, but it, it, was, it was effective. They couldn't stamp out these Christians. You still have their villages. You still have how they train those kids. There is a training program. Alan talked about it and the elders have talked about it. Um, and other, I think it's in China, that's similar to this. But that's what they did to get through the persecution. They stayed focused on the scriptures. Now we have the 1040 window. You've heard about this through mission stories. They estimate 60% of the population in that longitude, latitude, that, that window. And of course, you notice where it's at, right? I mean, here's Spain, and you have basically the Middle East, Northern Africa, all the way over to East Asia. This is the place we're trying to reach through our mission offering. 
Now, mission offering has gone down in North America. That's a problem because North America's offerings multiplies in some of those countries, especially you get North Africa and other places. And yet, the devil is shutting down some of our givingness, and we should keep giving more to world missions and the world budget. I don't care what you think about all different other portions of the church, but give to world missions. Give to the, the mission budget because that's where it's going. It's basically hiring frontline missionaries who know the language and who can take the message to those places. But what's also happening in those places, if you look at persecution.com, look at this map. Isn't that almost the same? I put it right over the top there. It's a little bit staggered, but, but it's, it's, well, there's Spain right there, right on through there. Isn't it interesting? That's the persecution zone, the biggest persecution zone. You can say, well, North America, we've got secularism and other things. And there's some isolated persecution, but this is widespread. So the very place that we are trying to reach at the end, especially, this is really the one main area that we have not successfully gotten the gospel and permeating it with it. I mean, North America, you, some people call it a Christian nation. It's not really that. But as you look at that window, that's where the biggest persecution is going on. In Turkey, 120 members we have there. I mean, that's a country of millions. So 120 people and three churches. These seven churches are down to three churches with 120 members. This is already going on. Corey Tin Boom said years ago that some look for a future tribulation, a, a, a rapture and a, and a major tribulation but she said the tribulation is already underway. Maybe not the last great one, but it's already underway. Those Christians suffer for their faith. And you can go to persecution.com and read the stories and watch the videos. They're not all Seventh-day Adventists. Some of them are. It's already underway. We have been given a respite from this. But we are facing a darker future where it's, it's not... I was reading an article, I was at, the, at a waiting room, and it said, um, is there truth left anymore? And it was citing the media, how people make one claim and another claim and say this outrageous statement and that outrageous statement, it's going through this whole thing. I'm like, wow, our people in our country don't even know what's truth anymore. And we live at a time when we have something to give them that has never contradicted itself. Yes, there's higher critical method. There's other things we have to deal with. But North America is relatively mild in the persecution. We have an opportunity to not only reach those people there, but prepare our own country for the great persecution that's coming. Not just ourselves. Those kids over across the street, the people in our, in our neighborhoods, people in our county, people on our, our college campuses, if we're going to college, our workplaces, we must prepare for what's already being experienced over there. And so how do I overcome tribulation? The first thing I do is I constantly recognize that this message of revelation, the whole Bible, is for me. It's for each one of us. If I see it as applicable to me, and now I need to be able to recognize Jesus is trying to get my attention and say, Murray, do those works. Overcome the tribulation. You know, you're not poor if I can apply it to my life and then begin sharing with those around me, then that becomes a personal message that's powerful. Then I remember that he who is speaking knows what he's talking about. It's not just, he, Jesus sent me a letter here. 
It's he has been through all tribulation that the devil could throw at him in his life. And he overcame. He said, it is written, it is written. And then the last thing will be to remain faithful. So I recognize it. I remember as I'm going through the trial that he knows what I'm going through when I'm going through that trial. But it all begins with recognizing a message for me. And I found this quotation in 1901. If you hear what the Spirit says to the churches and meditate upon the instruction given to them, your ears will be closed to the folly and nonsense which surrounds you. You will neither hear and repeat these things, nor will you ever hanker after them. When Christ satisfies the soul hunger, this is the only way, these trivialities are to you distasteful and disgusting. You have no desire to feast upon them, but choose instead the bread of heaven. There are a lot of theories out there. There are a lot of speculations out there. There are a lot of would-be scholars out there. And I'm not a scholar. I'm just a pastor opening up the word of God. But if they don't somehow point me to Christ who satisfies my soul hunger, they are distasteful, disgusting. And frankly, you get down to Revelation, the last church, they are vomit. That's exactly what he does. He spews it out of his mouth. So I have to say, yeah, I want to recognize this. This is a message for me. If I'm going to be going through a tribulation, I need to recognize that this Jesus gives me a message to help me through it that he knows what he's talking about, but then I also have to choose to be faithful. God has placed within our grasps, within our ability, the ability to end this scene of misery. And I want to be faithful all the way down to the end. I want to be able to say, I've been faithful even to death. And Jesus says, be thou faithful to death and I will give thee the crown of life. So I overcome by recognizing the message, by remembering that Jesus can lead me through whatever I face, but also by choosing to be faithful all the way to the end. And it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We have nothing to fear. Because what can happen to us? We could die here in this world. We could, and I've read historical accounts of heinous torture methods not because I was reading it to entertain myself, but because I'm reading through historical records of, of people going through persecution in Christian history, and, and it, it's painful. But the thought that Jesus is going through it with you, that he personally comes to you, he'll walk you through it, that will help me become faithful. Not just in persecution, but in every other area of my life. And so tribulation, persecution, overcoming it means we're called to be faithful. And that's what our closing song is about. If you notice these words, it goes from being wounded, outcast, lowly, afraid, which that's where I'm focusing on today. Let's, let's, yeah, persecutions, tribulations coming. Let's, it's, it's fearful if we just dwell on it. Let's go from there to faithfulness. Facing it unafraid. And so I'm going to ask Ron to play this again. You'll read the words, you'll hear the music, and just apply it to your lives. Let's overcome tribulation with Jesus.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you've given us a message personally from Jesus. Help us to remember as we're going through tribulation that you're with us all the way through it. And give us that great joy that you've overcome the world and guide us to be faithful to the end. You know our hearts, Lord. You know what we struggle with when we leave this place. Whatever the tribulation or trial may be, help us to overcome it, we pray in Jesus' name.